You're listening to the Small Business Talk podcast with Kathy Smith. Small Business Talk is a podcast for business owners and entrepreneurs who want a better way to run their businesses without spending years doing it the hard way. Small Business Talk is hosted by Kathy Smith, who has run the same marketing agency for more than 17 years and helped hundreds of business owners achieve their marketing goals. Welcome to Small Business Talk, episode 138. Today, my guest is Rail Bricker from railbricker.com, and we're going to be talking about how to make your business more excellent. Welcome, Rail. Thank you, Kathy. Great to be here. So, tell us the two-minute story about yourself. Oh, that takes longer than two minutes. No, the two-minute story is I've been a serial entrepreneur in two different countries, ended up building up businesses that listed on stock exchanges, both in South Africa and Australia. I started a financial services business in Australia 20 years ago that I still own that has $3 billion of mortgage settlements under its belt. And about seven years ago, through a series of personal things that happened, I ended up following my passion, which is being on stage and being a speaker, mentor, coach, facilitator. And I published a book in 2018. That's the short form of the story is that I've been an entrepreneur pretty much my whole life. Fantastic. So how can the listeners make their business more excellent? I think it's by design, but also by not overthinking. And that's the back of my book actually says business is not complicated. Business is simple. Just dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. So that's the first thing I think is that people need to understand and have flexibility. They need to be able to say, okay, I'm not 100% sure of this decision, but let's make it anyway, because we are more than 50% or more than 70% sure it's the right decision. I see too many entrepreneurs who stuck in the middle. I mean, that's on a big macro level that I'm talking about now. They're stuck in the middle. They don't want to make a decision to do anything. And then they end up in this weird position where they complain that business is not going well, business is not growing, but they haven't actually taken a dive of faith, a leap of faith into it and gone, yeah, I know enough about my business to actually make it work. Yes, they get stuck in that analysis paralysis and won't move forward backwards or sideways, which of course leaves them going backwards. Absolutely. And I see it even more with people who are still in a corporate role. And they, oh, yeah, I really want to start my business. And I'm just doing one more spreadsheet of analysis. Well, yes, but if you have to rely on the spreadsheets, you're going to be in deep trouble. Yes. And I think that's become more apparent in the last few years that it definitely is all about community and making sure that you're actually getting in front of people and making that connection. Yeah. One of the chapters in the book says, sales is king. Don't tell the marketing gurus. And I know you're a marketing guru, but there's a specific reason I use that wording. It's because nobody likes to call themselves a salesman. Nobody likes to think that they're good at sales. But ultimately, if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. Whatever business you're in, you're in sales. And as soon as organizations realize or people in organization realize that every single person is involved in sales, then it suddenly starts making a whole lot more sense. And when companies or organizations say, well, that's the sales team, but then the customer service team, even though they may be answering customer queries, are very much in sales. Now, that's in the larger scale. But when you're starting as an entrepreneur, you do everything yourself. And a big portion of that is generating income. 
if you're not selling, you know, I never saw myself as a salesman. Like even though my for my finance business, my mortgage business was really successful, I still never saw myself as a salesman. And it was one of those epiphany revelation kind of things where I went and said, huh, maybe I am quite good at sales without actually going out and doing 10 different courses on selling. So when I say business is about sales, it is you can market, you can have PR, you can do all those other things. But unless you have got the people or yourself as entrepreneur physically selling and closing the deal, you don't have a business. All the other things are, are very important, but you have to make sure you have a business. Yes. And if you don't have sales, you don't have income. If you don't have revenue, you have a very expensive hobby. Absolutely. But then in my time as a professional speaker now, I actually teach people how to sell without selling. What does that mean? We use behavioral styling. We use four different behavioral colors. And in my world, what I'll call the reds, the reds, which only make up 10 to 11% of our population, they don't mind being sold to. They're the guys who'll engage with the call center salesman on a phone at 6.30 in the evening just because they almost like being sold to because that's what they do. But 90% of our population hate being sold to. And so we go through a process in my workshops and my seminars where we teach people how to create an environment that makes it easy for people to buy and not to sell to them. And so it's a subtle but not so subtle distinction. I think it's a huge distinction because people do like to buy, but they don't like the ickiness of the salesman. And of course, as soon as you say salesman, people think of car yards, real estate agents, and all those people that we now unfortunately put icky titles around. But if we're thinking about adding value, then why wouldn't you want to buy? Well, yeah, until I started and understood the methodology, I'd always done it. So my methodology in mortgage business, in my South African business, which is in education, was always to just explain things to people in simple terms, words of one syllable, as I say. But in finance, I've trained my team over the years to use non-bank speak, to not use bank words when talking to customers. So my staff have always taught in words of one syllable, right? So they'll explain finance. I've always had a ton of colored pens on my desk. And when I'm explaining finance to people, I'm drawing little houses in different colors and loans are in different colors and how each loan relates to each house. Sounds complicated, but it actually makes it really simple when you do that. But at the end of the day, I'd say, here are the forms. When you're ready to implement the structure, come back to me. There's no pressure at all. It's up to them. We're putting the ball in their court. And I think that to me is what I call selling past the close. And I see a lot of guys who go, and and I'll help you fill the forms out now. And then people go, let me think about it. I'll come back to you next Tuesday. And then you've lost them as a customer. By not selling past the close, by just stopping at a point, you're going, yeah, that works. I've given you my best. If you walk away and go to someone else, okay. But I am the best at what I do. And so then we switch into marketing mode because then we go from selling the product or service to saying why they should use us. That's marketing. Yes, definitely. And having that respect for the client, not trying to push them into anything will, of course, help to stop that buyer's remorse when they go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. So have you got some tips for our audience about how they can make their businesses more excellent? It comes down to communication. Everything I do is communication. So that's the one thing. And it's about understanding behaviors, as I said, when we sell. But those behaviors apply equally to your internal team. So as you start employing team members, you need to empower them. One of the working titles of my book was Give Up Control to Gain Control. 
Now, what does that mean? For the average entrepreneur who wants to make the, and when I say entrepreneur, that doesn't mean a solopreneur. That means a person who started a business, they may already have a team. I'm talking about somebody who started a business or bought into a business and is growing that business. It could have a multiple staff crew and multiple offices, doesn't matter. That's who I'm talking about, right? And it could be a solopreneur. The truth is that most entrepreneurs are control freaks. And so they don't want to give up anything because everything they give up costs them money. And that's understandable when you start a business. You don't have a lot of money to do these things. But as soon as you start getting your sales right and generating revenue, then you have to start saying, what are you good at as the entrepreneur? So give up control of the things you're not very good at. So I'm terrible at accounting. I can do it. And when I started my businesses, both in South Africa and Australia, I did the accounting for the first two years because I couldn't afford a bookkeeper. Do I enjoy it? No, I absolutely hate it. But then I got a bookkeeper in half a day a week, one day a week. And so I gave up control of the day-to-day stuff in my business and I got control of my own life. There's an old thing that says you should do the $500 an hour revenue and not the $10 an hour admin. And so that's where guys get caught up because they get to be like the duck sitting on the pond. The feet are going like crazy under the water, but the exterior on top of the pond looks really calm. Just wasting time. You have to make that leap of faith to say, I'm going to appoint somebody. The best decision in finance was when I appointed my first assistant, who is still there 15 years later and now is the general manager of the business and a shareholder. When I appointed him, it was a major shift from doing everything myself to saying, I'll show you once, you go and do it. And if you stuff up, okay, we'll fix the stuff up. And I think that last bit of that is where most people don't cross the line. They don't empower their staff to mess up. Yes, absolutely. And I absolutely love the analogy of you need to bring the $500 revenue per hour as opposed to the 10, 20, 30, whatever it is, administration cost. Because in the end, if you're doing everything, you'll actually cost yourself money. Because for your example with the bookkeeping, and I'm exactly the same, that was the first thing I outsourced. And I was spending all my holidays doing it. And it was taking me hours. And then when I got my first bookkeeper, I said, oh, I think there's about a week's work there. After a day, she came back and said, well, what else have you got? And I go, well, that's it. And they're so much more skilled at us. So it's the same as anything. If you're learning to do it, yes, you need to learn to do it to know how to do it. But in the end, it is far better for you to pay an expert or somebody who can actually do it with skill than for you to continue to learn to do it. Totally. And I mean, that relates to a second point, though, that I'm going to make, which is that of mentors and masterminds. Now, it took me into my early 50s to actually admit publicly that I was now coachable, that I could now seek out a mentor. If I go back through my life, I have had lots of mentors, but if I had less arrogance, would probably have, and that's a self-criticism, I would probably have learned much more from them. But there's a line in the book when I talk about my early days and I said I sometimes confuse confidence, overconfidence and arrogance and it's taken me into my 50s to understand the difference between them. And so part of that is having to actually become coachable, which is one thing that I've done over the last five or seven years. And that's the other thing I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is it's not about giving up control. 
I don't necessarily like the word coach. I prefer the word mentor because I think coaching has become too middle of the road, too low end. But I think a true mentor, someone with real business experience who can guide you with starting every sentence with, in my experience, not he has a template for you to go and do something, which is the coaching model. The mentor model is in my experience and they become a sounding board for you. That's very different to giving up control and employing a bookkeeper. It's a different thing. It's about investing in yourself and your own self-development. And so I mentor a number of people and I run lots of masterminds and I find masterminds where there's no competing masterminds. They're not there for networking. They are there purely for allowing people to get an external opinion on their thinking process. Yes, and that's very true. And I think coaching has become a broad term for a lot of things, from consulting to people that have done a week or two-week little snap course, and now they can suddenly put their coaching tile on. So yeah, true coaches, I think, still have a very huge role. But unfortunately, a lot of people calling themselves coaches are not actually doing that coaching function. So coaching, mentoring, consulting are all quite different, but they've become quite muddy. Yeah, that's why I tend to use the word mentor, just because it has a different connotation and it's not formulaic, where I think a lot of coaching has become formulaic. I run a three-month business program called the Excellence Academy. And so it's about 40 to 45 hours of classroom time or hybrid classroom time. What I mean by that is, so I have a hybrid classroom set up in Perth, so I can have people in the classroom in Perth. In my last academy, I had people from Switzerland, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, and people in Perth all on the same academy. And they interact, it's set up with cameras, etc. So that is formulaic to some degree because it's driven by a curriculum or my own curriculum that we run it through. But the real benefit, when I talk to people at the end of that program, the real benefit has been somebody says, you know, in my business, my target market is X or my positioning is X. And someone will say, but hang on, what about John down the road? My cousin, he positions himself like Y. Have you ever considered that? And so that program, the academy also morphs into half of it being a mastermind where you're using peer groups to hone your ideas. And so that's that formulaic combination that goes into controlled masterminds, which really works well. Yes. Yeah, so with masterminds, you can also then borrow things that are from other industries, which of course is what Uber and Airbnb and some of those very successful people did. They took the standard model and then they threw it out the window completely and bought in a completely different model. And what's the norm in your industry is not necessarily the norm in somebody else's industry. So then it's all new and fresh. So yes, I too love Mastermind. When I started out my very first business in 1990, we were working with material. We ran a training and education business in South Africa that ended up with 4,000 students over six campuses over a six-year period and owning 5,000 square meters in downtown Johannesburg as a head office. But when we started out that business, we were very influenced by the work of some professors from Harvard Business School. My partner and I were both business school graduates, so we kind of liked the idea of academic research. I've become a little bit more pragmatic over time. But they had a concept, which I still apply in lots of businesses today that I work with, called functional benchmarking. We tend to try and compare our business as a whole to some someone else's business as a whole and find out how we can improve our business. 
Functional benchmarking says you break your business down into multitude of functions and not necessarily on traditional lines. And the classic example was at the time when these guys were the gurus, the best billing system in the world was American Express. They had the most sophisticated billing system to do micro billing, $2, $1 incremental billing. And so American Express turned around and said, if you don't compete with us, we will open up our doors and show you how we run our billing system so that your business can improve its billing system. That was remarkable. This is in the early 90s. Collaboration to the T. Yeah, but not anything to do with American Express. So you couldn't be Visa or MasterCard wanting to see what's the back end of American Express. But if you were running, uh, in American terms, the Walmart, something of that scale, you could go in and see how their billing systems worked. And that's what they spoke about, functional benchmarking. So you benchmark your systems against the best in the world in that narrow category. And so therefore, as you said, the Uber model, the Airbnb model, etc., they would have benchmarked themselves on a narrow narrow segment of someone else's business and made themselves better in that particular segment. I don't know if you've ever come across the book Blue Ocean Strategies by Rena Mabon and W. Kim Chan. Certainly have. And so when you read the book, they talk about overall strategy. And so I've actually applied it in a lot of the work I do where I say we have to functionally benchmark the blue ocean. You look for your uncontested market space in a particular segment of your market. You don't try and create a whole business that's swimming in the blue ocean. That's something that I was learning about 30 years ago. And I actually have two articles published on the Blue Ocean Strategies website, on the author's own website. There are two blogs that I wrote for them a number of years ago and looking at this functional aspects of the blue ocean. And I think that's a really good thing because quite often you'll find is people get too overwhelmed because they know that they can't be American Express or Walmart, but they certainly can look at the best of the best and adapt that to a particular section of their business, which then, of course, can make their business more excellent. Yeah, absolutely. So we've used this word excellence the whole time and I define excellence in an interesting way. So somebody asked me the other day, they said, what is excellence? And I said, excellence is an acknowledgement that we can never be perfect, that perfection doesn't exist. And so therefore, being excellent and being more excellent means showing up as the best version of ourself and our business by extension every day. The Tokyo Olympics were a classic example of that. Every athlete tried to show up as the best version of themselves every day. There was no perfect 10 scores. So they were never perfect. They were just getting better and better, becoming more excellent every day. And the benchmark they used was their own performance. So someone could come fourth in a race and not get a medal, but beat their personal best time. That's an achievement in and of itself. That's making them more excellent. It's unfortunate that we love watching the athletes, but we don't see ourselves as athletes in our own businesses. I was a state sportsman. I did play sport at state level in my 20s, and I still play sport in my 50s at a master's and veterans level. The truth of it is that we can learn so much from sport as an analogy for business. For this process of continuously improving ourselves, even the one person solopreneur still has a target, still has things to do, but they can continually improve themselves. That's why I love golf. I know that sounds weird. And not only does it give you a good time out from work, but your performance on a golf course is only based on you. 
It's not based on the people you're playing with. I started playing golf just before I turned 30, and one of my best friends was a professional golfer in South Africa. And I was playing off a 25 handicap, and he was playing off a plus four as a professional. And him and I would go out and play golf together with his professional friends. And it didn't matter to them that I took one extra shot per hole or two extra shots per hole. My performance on a day had nothing to do with how they were playing. And I learned that skill very early on from them. Sometimes we look at our own business and judge our performance, not our aspects of our business that can improve, but our own business performance against everyone else. Oh my God, that person sold five houses and I've only sold one. What sort of real estate agent am I? It's not about that. It's about benchmarking against yourself. And I think that's a really good thing for solopreneurs because sometimes as a solopreneur, they don't think they've got anything to strive for. They don't think they've got anything to get up for that morning or whatever if they're having a bad day. And if they just think if they can do each day better than yesterday, if they can serve their customers better than they did yesterday or their last interaction, then that's pushing for excellence. So that's a great analogy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it extends further into, so one of the techniques we use in our mentoring is about goal setting. So now everyone goes, oh, goal setting, okay? And I bet you're going to tell us now about smart goals, you know? No, I'm not. Yes, goals do have to be specific and measurable and all those other things, but we use a visualization technique, which is a great technique for solopreneurs, for high Ds, for high reds in my behavioral styles who don't have the patience to think about goal setting and setting daily and weekly goals and all that is we use a visualization technique where we say to people where are you going to be in three months well we don't know anymore we used to say in a swimmer pool in Bali or somewhere but no that doesn't apply anymore <laughs> no um, unfortunately not in this ever-changing world as we're recording this we're the only state in Australia and Western Australia that's not in lockdown so we definitely feel for all of you people that have been really impacted by the things that are happening in the world and the constant uncertainty of lockdowns yeah, and the fact that most of the other world are going, we'll live with things, but then they've got to 70% vaccination rates or something. So they have sort of a logic to it. I'll use the Bali analogy for the moment. It could be a local hotel. And I use that specifically because you have to visualize your celebration first. So you say in three months time or in six months or in 12 months, I can see myself swimming up to the bar at the pool at this fancy resort hotel and ordering a cocktail. And I'm there with my partner, business partner, significant other, my kids, whatever the case may be. And we are drinking cocktails. And only then do we say, why are we celebrating? We're celebrating because we got 200 customers, we achieved a certain milestone, we turned over a million dollars. It doesn't matter what the milestone is. We're reprogramming our brain. Instead of just sticking a yellow sticky note on our mirror, and there's that lots of gurus over years have said, write your goals up on a sticky note, stick them on your mirror, and look at them every morning when you shave or do your makeup. The truth of it is, that's a standalone goal with no meaning. But if you suddenly train your brain to see how you're going to celebrate achieving that, then the goal becomes much more tangible. And the truth of it is when you get into the psycho babble or psychoanalysis, the brain can't distinguish between an imagined reality and the truth. And so if you imagine your reality is at the swim up bar drinking a cocktail with your significant other because you're celebrating having achieved a certain milestone, the brain thinks you've achieved it already and therefore it's much easier to achieve. 
Yes, and imagination creates motivation. So if you put a why to that goal, not just like you say, just on a piece of paper, you've got a reason behind it and what you're going to do as a celebration, then it makes it so much more tangible and achievable. And I think the other thing that people do is they don't stop to celebrate those milestones. They just go from one thing to another to another. It's a bit like a journey that goes from A to B, whereas you're not enjoying the journey as part of the trip. So you end up, you just get to the end of the year and you go, well, what have I done? Because you haven't celebrated any of those milestones along the way. You're right. That's what motivates us. So we have this loop of the actions you have to take to achieve the goals, etc. And when you get to the reward, that motivates you to think and then act and then put a plan into place, etc. to achieve the next goal. But the first way we get over our first hurdle is by visualizing that goal. If you don't have a, a reason to do it or a why to do it, then you may as well just go, what am I doing this for? Follow somebody else's plan and instructions and then not be fulfilled Mm. at the end. Yeah, absolutely. So have you got one final tip for the audience of how to make their business more excellent? I would say keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate things. Again, I keep referring back to my book, but my book was called Dive In, Lessons Learned Since Business School. It is a summary of 30 years of my entrepreneurial journey since I left business school and all the things I did to make my businesses excellent. And so I'll use the keeping it simple example, but in the mortgage business, it's a paper-driven business. And it was definitely 20 years ago, a paper-driven business, right? Every person gave you three inches of paper and you had to process it and then send an application to a bank on their behalf. And one of my earliest team members, not the one who's still there, but one who's still in the industry, and I appreciate the fact that I trained her for six years and she's gone to much higher places in the industry. She once joked with me and said, if this pile of files on my desk falls over, I'm resigning before it hits the ground because it would have been complete chaos to try and sort it out. And I looked at that simple thing she said to me and I went, okay, what happens? And then the second thing I realized with my staff was that they would look at a file and go, oh, this file's too complicated. Let's just put it on the bottom of the pile and we'll deal with the simple ones today. We'll deal with the complex ones tomorrow. But tomorrow can never comes because they get back the next morning and start dealing with the simple ones again. So I looked at each of my staff members who had about 40 files on their desk and I said, what happens if we broke that down into five groups of eight? And therefore, you only have eight files to deal with on a day. Then I know your work is going to get done. So what we did is a very, very simple visual system. Each person got a whiteboard next to their desk. This is how simple the system is with five columns, Monday to Friday. And I put in a big bookshelf and each person had their shelves called Monday to Friday. So they'd look at Kathy Smith's file on a Monday morning, they'd phone the bank and the bank would say, we'll give you an answer on Thursday. They would literally write Kathy Smith on the whiteboard and physically take your file and put it on a shelf marked Thursday. Now it was out of their vision. It was out of their locus. So they didn't see this 40 files on their desk. They'd walk in on Tuesday morning, they would take eight files off the shelf and an easily manageable workload. It changed the way they did things. I mean, I came up with the analogy because I was going through some running training at the time and I was running up hills and my running coach was saying, when you run up a hill, never look at the top of the hill. Always look at your feet because if you just make sure your feet go one step in front of the other, when you finally look up, you'll actually be at the top of the hill. And it was exactly the same thing about simplifying the business, making the system so simple that we could 
could train a staff member in days that if a staff member called in sick, somebody could walk up to their desk and go, these are the files that are priority to be dealt with today. It was just about not overcomplicating things. I had bankers coming in and going, oh my God, we wish we could simplify our systems as simple as yours because they work, they were efficient. And so again, I didn't spend hours spreadsheeting that, which is how we started this conversation. It was a series of things that I looked at and went, let's just simplify their lives and my life. How incredible. I love that. That is the perfect tip, especially in our world of overwhelm, where we look at those 40 files and go, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. But if you've only got eight there, then that's very achievable. So I absolutely love that. So if our audience would like to connect with you more, Rail, how can they find you? So railbricker.com is simple. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or on Facebook. I'm pretty open to all of those. I use them all the time. And or just email me rail at railbricker.com. And if anyone wants, I've mentioned the book dive in a few times. Anyone wants a free copy of that book? For your listeners, they can go to railbricker.com slash free book, and they'll be able to download a PDF version of Dive In Lessons Learned Since Business School. Fantastic. And we'll pop all of that in the show notes. So at this point in the podcast, I ask five final questions. So are you game? Go for it. Okay. What's the best advice given to you by a mentor? Back yourself. Believe in yourself. Don't let the imposter syndrome get in your way. Wonderful. What is the biggest help you've received since starting your business? Probably my father-in-law who went to the bank and pleaded with them to lend us 20,000 rand in those days, about $7,000, so we could start our business. Excellent. What is the one thing you have to do every day, your non-negotiable? Exercise. Yep, that's mine as well. What is your favorite business book and why? Right now, it's probably Radical Candor, just because I see so many really bad managers in the Radical Candor model. If you know the book, it's a great book. Radical Candor has a four-part model, but the opposite of a leader who has Radical Candor, who really cares and wants to grow their team, that means Radical Candor. The opposite of that, just as one example, is something called ruinous empathy or manipulative insincerity. And I just see so many really poor leaders. And so Radical Candor, is a great book to really get into a very simple way of understanding what people are doing wrong. And who's it by? Do you know? I should know, but I can't remember. Oh, no worries. I'll look it up. What do you wish you had known when you started out? I wish I'd known a little bit more about understanding, and it's going to be a bit technical, but what Simon Sinek says now, which is start with the end in mind or start with why, I didn't always have my why very clear. A lot of the time it was fuzzy. And so it's not about that overthinking. It's just about understanding and having a clear direction as to why you're doing things. And I think that's a perfect way to end our podcast. So thank you very much, Raoul. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That was a good interview. That was fun. I enjoyed that. And I hope that your listening audience have got some value from those 30 years as an entrepreneur. I'm sure they will have. So thank you very much. Don't forget to subscribe to Small Business Talk podcast and head on over to smallbusinesstalk.com.au forward slash downloads for all the show notes and links to this episode. Remember, to be great, you must start. Pick one tip from today's episode, take action and implement it. Let's meet again next week at the same time and place. Until then, take action. And SBT community, enjoy your journey.